Heading into 2023, small caps just couldn't catch a break. After dramatically outperforming in late 2020 and early 21, performance down the market cap spectrum has left a lot to be desired. In fact, last year, the Russell 2000 had its worst nine-month start to a year on record. This is Markets in Focus from Raymond James Investment Management. I'm your host, Matt Orton, and I invite you to join me and my colleagues as we discuss the latest trends and developments driving the markets. Visit us at marketsinfocuspodcast.com for additional episodes and insights. To be fair, 2022 was a brutal year across most asset classes. Worries about a hard landing were pretty pervasive, and we endured the most rapid tightening of monetary policy in over 40 years. So I guess it's no surprise that investors just wanted to sit on the sidelines or lean into high-quality companies or dividend growth to protect against the violent swings of the market. But with growth proving to be a bit more resilient than many of us may have anticipated, and with somewhat constructive price action down the market cap spectrum at the start of 2023, I think it's time to really focus on the opportunity set across smaller companies. And to help engage in that discussion, I have two small cap veterans joining us today to really dive into the case for small caps and how they're assessing potential investment themes. We have Tim Miller, co-portfolio manager of Scout Investment Small Cap Strategies, as well as Matt McGeary, who's a portfolio co-manager of the Eagle Vermont Small and Smid Strategies here to help take on and lead this discussion. Uh, So Tim and Matt, thank you for being here today. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks, Matt. Of course. So there's still some disagreement in the market around small caps, and specifically whether it makes sense to be getting more optimistic on the asset class or whether it's just too early given lingering concerns around the ultimate path of the economy. So Matt, maybe you can start off by highlighting some of the reasons to be more optimistic on small caps right now. Sure. Thanks, Matt. I think there's a few things I could point out. First is valuation. Now, valuation is not a great short-term indicator or short-term catalyst, but over the long term, if you have a longer-term view, obviously your entry point is important. And valuation for small caps continues to look fairly attractive. It's about 10% cheaper than its long-term average on a PE basis from an absolute perspective and about a 25% discount to large caps relative to the long-term average. So I think from a from a valuation perspective, small caps look reasonably good. And even if you look at only profitable small cap companies, they also look relatively cheap relative to a large cap peer. So from valuation perspective, I think it makes sense. I also think you can think about the dominance of the FANG M trade. If not being over, I think is certainly diminished uh, with increased regulation, with geopolitical issues happening, and very simply them being so overowned uh, over the recent decade. And I think, you know, from a small cap perspective, even a little bit of flow coming out of the mega caps, looking for a new home, potentially into small caps can make a huge difference. There's also an interesting fundamental, you know, when you think about why large caps have done so much better, particularly in the last decade, there's good fundamental reason, right? I mean, the large caps had better margins, better cash flow dynamics than the small caps. And so it makes sense that capital flowed there. And I do wonder, you know, thinking about what's been happening in small caps, we're starting to hear a little bit more talk from companies about focusing 
um, more on profitability, getting to profitability sooner. Um, there certainly seems to be less appetite currently for long duration, non-earning small caps. So to the extent that that starts to be more of the norm and be more prevalent in small caps, you could see the margin discrepancy between small and large cap tighten up a bit, which would be a certainly helpful from a fundamental perspective. And then just lastly, I think, you know, just historically, if we look back at small caps, they tend to do better than large caps if we are in a, a higher inflationary environment um, that does sort of at least historically pretend to higher nominal growth, which benefits small caps. Certainly all the talk we've heard about nearshoring, onshoring, more focus on domestic economy would be more beneficial to small caps relative to large. And, and then just lastly, if you look at long-term cycles over the last 80 years or so, you, know, you tend to see these cycles, you know, 10 to 12-year cycles of small versus large. And, and large, is, large caps have done you know, quite a bit better over the last 10, 12 years, and, and perhaps we're, we're ready for a new small cap cycle. So I think there's a lot of reasons to look to the asset class in the current market environment. Yeah, and performance this year, I think, or at least at the start of the year, certainly supports the point that you just made, Matt, because I think the Russell 2000 was up almost 8% through the end of February. So, so maybe there's something there. But we still haven't seen that sort of big breakout like we had in November of 2020 after Vaccine Monday, or really the clear sign of an upcycle. And, and lower quality, smaller companies have been leading the market higher out of the gates. Tim, I'd love to get your thoughts on what hurdles might currently be holding small caps back from that big breakout. And to that end, how would you say your investment approach navigates short-term periods where more speculative companies are in favor? Yeah, thanks, Matt. You know, there are a number of different factors that seem to be standing in the way of a breakout right now. You know, we've obviously been dealing with inflation and an uncertain economic environment. And, you know, businesses and, and consumers have to be careful to navigate all that noise. But front and center right now is this current banking crisis we've all been witnessing. You know, it likely isn't nearly as significant and widespread as what we witnessed back in the global financial crisis, but it is most certainly an overhang. On top of that, we've seen the consumer continuing to spend, um, but there's a little moderation in consumer credit card spending in February. Uh, that could indicate a little bit more caution there. Um, overall, the strong labor market uh, really seems to have bolstered consumer confidence. Um, but there's clearly some concern when you look at a recent pullback in, uh, in retail foot traffic. You know, that's fallen back down to 2018 levels. And a lot of that traffic appears to have shifted to the discount stores. Uh, and then on top of that, you know, a lot of retailers are actually starting to talk about consumers trading down to lower price products as well. You know, so bottom line is a consumer still seems pretty strong, but there's definitely a bit of caution emerging there. And then, you know, on the other side, uh, businesses, uh, they've seen a little pressure as well. Corporate margins have declined pretty significantly from their peak about a year and a half ago. Uh, you know, a lot of that seems attributable to uh, rising labor costs and just overall tightness in the labor market. But we're still seeing higher supply chain costs as well. You know, a lot of the supply chain woes that companies were dealing with, you know, they've been addressed and they've, you know, kind of made adjustments for these. But, you know, the costs are, are still definitely there. And then we more recently have heard about higher inventory levels from a lot of our companies and their customers. And that seems to be leading to softer demand, at least in the near term. Going back to, you know, kind of the biggest issues I mentioned the the banking crisis, but there are really two others as well. Um, you know, there's a risk of, of monetary policy action as the Fed kind of considers further rate hikes. And then I think the specter of the debt ceiling negotiation is really hanging over the market as well. You know, we're confident that the debt ceiling will ultimately get raised. But until that happens, I don't think the market's really going to be able to rally very much. 
Yeah, and, and similarly, Matt, maybe to, to bring you in, you know, Tim talked about some of these issues we're facing between banking crisis, monetary policy. How does this sort of environment create opportunities for, for investments as an active manager? And how do you not get whipsawed if you try and make adjustments to your portfolio in these sorts of roller coaster market environments? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, Tim makes some good points. And I, I think that, you know, clearly the tide is going out, right? And we're about to see who's swimming naked and who's swimming with the suit on. And you can run down the path. I mean, Tim pointed out a lot of the concerns from a macro perspective. And, you know, clearly from an 80,000 foot view, I think the, you know, era of extraordinarily easy money policy is probably over, you know, zero zero or negative rates and, you know, seemingly cash, incessant, you know, cash payments from the federal government, QE, you know, you run, you run down the gamut. So, for me, that, that, that period looks to be over. And you look at it from an inflation standpoint, I mean, and pricing. Pricing is an issue that we've been focused on intently um, over the last few quarters. And it does seem like the period of easy getting everyone getting price um, is behind us. And we're hearing that from our companies that, you know, pricing going forward is going to be more strategic, more targeted, um, which just says to us that it's not going to be as easy uh, to get as it has in the past. Cost of capital, you know, Tim mentioned the banking crisis. I think I don't know what the full ramifications of this are going to be, but one clear ramification is going to be the cost of capital going up and a little bit more friction in the financial system. And that is going to be certainly a headwind. So from our perspective, I think it's a great time to be an active manager because you're going to see companies being able to differentiate themselves from others, management teams being able to differentiate themselves. And it should be clear to investors which are the you know better enterprises um, versus others, and I think hopefully start rewarding those better businesses, and that's certainly what we look forward to. Um, and in terms of like avoiding whipsaws, you know, from our perspective, I think the most important thing is to maintain discipline to your philosophy and process. It's something we focus on a lot, particularly in these markets that are so volatile. Really ha- have a perspective stick to your knitting and really maintain a long-term focus, right? And, and be willing to go against the grain, be willing to be a bit contrarian. I mean, we, we talk about that more in recent years than we, than we have in the past because you see these violent swings in the market. Um, and I think it, it, you have to be willing to maintain your conviction, be willing to go against the grain. And I think have a long-term perspective makes a big difference and continue to focus as we do on just the better businesses Focus on your investment thesis and not let yourself get overly influenced by sort of the flavor of the month and, and, and current market and current news flow dynamics. Absolutely. And so, you know, maybe now I, I want to focus and get a little bit more specific and talk about some key themes uh, that are likely to impact small caps going forward and, and building on this idea of change in the market. You know, something that hasn't gotten a ton of attention is that MA activity actually appears to be picking up at the start of 2023 across a few different sectors, which is in pretty sharp contrast to the last year, you know, larger companies are finding more attractive opportunities to enhance their own value propositions. You know, Matt, how do you think this dynamic bodes for small caps as we move further into 23? And in your opinion, what criteria could lead the the trend to continue? Yeah, I think M&A for us has been a focal point. And I think it's going to be I think the activity level is going to increase, and I think that should be positive for small caps in general. And interestingly, a more 
uh, specific skew to strategic buyers versus versus um, financial buyers, which is certainly good to see from our perspective as well. I think it is going to continue. I think all the things we just talked about, you know, higher cost of capital, uh, maybe a slowing economy. I think all those things are going to lead to companies that have the ability to fund their own growth. Companies that have good balance sheets are going to look at this environment and try to consolidate their industries or increase their scale advantages. This is the time to do it when you get a slower economy, when there is less access to capital. Those companies that have those advantages should take should use that. Um, and I think we're going to see more of that. I would be hopeful that we see more of it from the strategic buyer side. Um, you know, companies building out their capabilities, um, you know, recognizing the value of some of these really high quality franchises, particularly on the small cap side that that could be able to add to their business. So we think it continues and we think it's going to be a potentially big driver for small caps in the next 12 to 18 months. Great. And, and Tim, given your focus in the growth space, have you seen any particular sectors or industries where significant valuation resets have led to more M&A activity? And how does that factor into how you're evaluating companies? Yeah, you know, as the markets pulled back and we've seen a pretty significant revaluation take place, uh, there's definitely been some pickup in M&A, particularly in those really high growth areas that have pulled back the most. Uh, There was a really interesting piece out from Fury Research Partners recently that had a couple of pretty interesting observations. First, the percentage of acquisitions in the Russell 2000 that came from tech and healthcare was the highest it's been since at least 1993. uh, And it's a little bit more than one third of all deals. Uh, and then second, the percentage of all acquisitions in the Russell 2000 that were made by financial buyers, and we're talking about you know the the non-strategic you know private equity type buyers, uh, that's also the highest it's ever been in that time period. It's roughly half the deals. So that's a pretty interesting contrast to what Matt and his team have been seeing in their portfolio. Uh, and you know that's typically what we're looking for as well are, are the strategic buyers uh, rather than the financials. But you know we'll take <laughs> we'll take any sort of uh, acquisition in our portfolio that might come along. We're happy to uh, to see those deals happen. Well, perfect. And you know, I think this is an interesting theme to to continue to follow as we move into twenty three. But to to pivot a little bit and look into another theme that I think is is worthwhile is is global supply chains. And supply chains have struggled to to stay on track in meeting the needs of companies as well as the consumer over the past few years. You know, you can blame it on COVID-19, geopolitical tensions, but rhetoric around the potential for companies to reshore parts of their operations and supply chains has become a lot more prevalent. And you've already mentioned that a little bit in some of this dialogue here, and you're seeing some companies already making investments. Maybe that's early signs of traction. But you know, Matt and Tim, what parts of the market are you seeing the most potential for reshoring to gain traction? And to that end, what opportunities does that afford you as investors amidst an evolving supply chain landscape? You know, there's been a lot of talk about reshoring and, you know, more broadly, just diversifying supply chains away from China. Uh, as we've seen in the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed last year, uh, there's nearly $400 billion of funding for clean energy and uh, tax credits for electric vehicles manufactured here in the U.S. So we should expect to see a lot of uh, development to build capacity around uh, bo- both those markets. And then uh, you mentioned the CHIPS Act. Um, that should drive the development of semiconductor fabs in the U.S., particularly for developing uh, you know, a lot of the high-end semiconductors used in aerospace and defense, uh, where there are going to be national security implications. One thing to keep in mind through all this is just the fact that supply chains, you know, they tend to be very well established and you can't just break away from the existing supply chain. It can take years uh, for, for companies to move sources of supply. 
And I think, you know, we'll probably see a lot of just simply moving to new lower cost countries like Vietnam uh, instead of relatively high labor cost markets like the U.S. Uh, and another thing to consider is whether or not we have the capacity as a country here in the U.S. to actually build all the infrastructure required to reshore this manufacturing if it does actually happen. Uh, you know, these are massive projects we're talking about, and they're really a limited number of people and companies with the technical expertise to execute this over the next decade. We're, we're talking about, you know, data centers, semiconductor fabs, battery factories, pharmaceutical factories. These are all in line to be built. Not, not to mention the trillion-dollar infrastructure bill that was passed back in 2021. So this is all just an enormous undertaking. As far as opportunities for investors in the changing landscape, you know, I think there are ways to capitalize on this just by finding the early movers and reshoring, uh, or even taking advantage of of some of the short-term inefficiencies that some of these moves can cause. A lot of the time, um, you know, the market will really punish companies for some of the short-term pain this inflicted when they're making these moves. So it can really be an opportunity for a more patient, longer term focused investor to benefit. I, I think Tim is right. I, I think I would just add that, you know, clearly it's interesting that supply chains have not, they've improved for sure, but have not normalized and not really anywhere close to normalization, um, which I think is interesting after all this time. And, and, and I do think Tim makes a good point about how established supply chains are and how difficult that is to change. Um, and you're hearing more uh, this term now they're using is sort of friend shoring, right? So this idea that, you know, maybe we can't bring everything back here for all those reasons that Tim mentioned, but we're going to perhaps move more sourcing away from, obviously away from China into more places that we think are, are a little bit more friendly to us from a geopolitical perspective and hopefully can be more stable um, through the cycles. I think that's very legitimate. The other thing that we're seeing, interestingly, from a few handful of companies is a renewed interest in more vertical integration in their businesses, companies that have the capability to manufacture more components that they use in their end products. We're seeing a surprising amount of that. I'm not sure that's going to be that broad based, but I think it's another way for companies to address this. Um, And I, I agree with Tim on the potential end markets, semiconductors, infrastructure, defense, everything around sustainability and the energy transition. You know, small caps tend to be you know, equipment suppliers, component suppliers, I think the opportunities are potentially enormous um, going forward. And I like the word uh, friendshoring. That, that's a new one for me. And speaking of friendshoring and maybe the drivers of that, it's, it's hard to talk about supply chains without bringing China into the fold. Uh, and China's finally reopened after three years of enduring zero COVID. So time's going to tell how this fully plays out. So far, I think it's been stronger than, than many may have expected. And while small caps are generally more protected from some global economic drivers, how will China's reopening, do you think, impact the space? And are there specific sectors or industries which may be suited to benefit the most from the world's largest population coming back online for the first time in nearly three years? Obviously, it's a big issue. It's an enormous economy. And there are, you know, particularly some obvious beneficiaries um, in the technology space. Energy consumption is a big one. I think the Chinese consumer coming back, the uh, Chinese tourists traveling, um, shopping, I think is a big issue, particularly in Europe um, and even here in the States. So, you know, I think it's a, it's a major issue. You know, I, I do think it's going to be interesting to see, though, um, and this sort of falls out of the small cap space. But I think looking at Chinese consumption patterns, and you know, we recently saw 
this discussion around Tesla and EVs and you know the more competition that they're getting from Chinese brands. And we're seeing that really across the consumer landscape is a I think certainly the government would prefer, the Chinese government that is, would prefer more focus on um, Chinese brands being purchased by Chinese consumers. Um, I think that's going to be an interesting dynamic, and particularly for the large cap guys like Tesla, like Apple, et cetera. But to see how that bleeds through the the entire economy um, could be an interesting dynamic to watch as we go forward. You know, I think uh, as as Chinese demand really starts to pick back up, uh, you know, a lot of the kind of basic materials used in a lot of the consumer products, um, you know, electronic materials, things like that. I, I think you'll start to see a, a tightening of, of demand for a lot of those uh, sorts of items, uh, which could have a, you know, kind of knock on effect here in the U.S. Um, should shore up some of the basic materials uh, in markets as well. You know, it, it's, just, it's a massive uh, economy and a massive uh, consumer base as well. So, you know, they can't help but be knock on effects uh, around the world. Right. And, and I think to, to hit on one more theme now that, that is very important to small caps is, is biotechnology. And, and even though biotech has basically been halved over the past two and a half years from relative underperformance, it's still one of the largest industries in the small cap space, particularly in small cap growth and, and a key driver of performance. So Tim, given your focus in growth, can biotech still be a major growth engine for small caps? And how do you approach the space given the pitfalls such as low quality companies that really are dependent on binary outcomes? Yeah, yeah. You know, we definitely think biotech can be a major growth engine for small caps. You know, this is an industry that pretty consistently grows at a high single digit rate year in and year out. uh, And it's ripe with drug development and advancement. Obviously, the industry has taken a pretty significant hit in the market over the past couple of years, and, and these businesses have been revalued. You know, earlier, Matt mentioned the market having less appetite for these long-duration, non-earning type companies. But there's still ways to make money, and we can't just ignore biotech because, like you said, it's it's still a pretty big piece of our Russell 2000 growth benchmark. You know, it's a little bit more than 8% of our benchmark today, the Russell 2000 growth, and it's been as high as 20% in recent years. You know, there are companies that already have a drug approved and are making money, uh, but still have a nice pipeline of products so they can continue rapid growth. And, you know, there are other businesses that may have a failed drug, but a really innovative drug development or drug uh, delivery technology. Uh, and they can license that out to lots of other biotech drug developers. So then they're exposed to, you know, a basket of drug candidates rather than just a single drug. Um, so really, you know, there are a lot less risky ways to still participate in biotech growth than a lot of investors may think. Perfect. And I know we're starting to run out of time, so I want to focus the last question and our final comments on some areas of the small cap market that you believe are still poised for growth, even in a slower macro uh, environment. So are there any secular growth trends that can drive long-term performance in the small cap universe? I'll leave it pretty open-ended. So Tim, maybe we'll start with you, and then I'll give the last word to Matt. Yeah, thanks. Um, You know, this is probably going to sound a bit cliche, um, but we think artificial intelligence and machine learning is going to continue to be a massive driver to the market. Uh, and there are really lots of ways to, to capture this in small cap. Obviously, you know, chat GPT has been a big story already this year. Uh, but in recent years, AI has been used by companies, you know, to manage customer interactions. Uh, pharmaceutical companies use it to, to screen drug compounds. Banks and insurance companies are, are doing predictive analysis uh, and risk management around, you know, catastrophic insurance events or, or banking default risks. So, you know, as an investor, there are really a lot of ways we can ride the wave. Uh, you can invest in software companies that are capitalizing on on developing AI tools. 
Uh, semiconductor companies are developing chips uh, to handle the huge computing and, and really power-hungry demands of, of AI servers. There are massive data centers being built and all sorts of infrastructure that's required around that. So we're really excited about the opportunity and still just think there's a long runway in front of us for AI investment. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think from an infrastructure standpoint, um, I, I will say that you know when I started in this business in the mid-90s, um, there was a lot of discussion about needing to improve our infrastructure as a country. So I take a little bit of the conversation around improving our infrastructure with a grain of salt from the powers that be, but um, there seems to be a more concerted effort. There seems to be more money flowing to it. This is a, a huge trend with potentially meaningful ramifications across a wide variety of end markets, things like roads and bridges and airports and ports, uh, 5G infrastructure, fiber buildouts. You know, the electrical grid is a big one, right? I mean, if we're going to, if we have all of these goals to, you know, increase the electrification of our economy, the grid is not ready for that. And, and we've seen, you know, we've seen evidence of that in recent years. So there's a lot of, of, of investment that needs to happen across a wide range of infrastructure projects. I think we've talked about on this call, the energy transition, sustainability, you know, there's a lot of constant news flow, people politicizing this issue, unfortunately. But I, the reality is that the train has left the station on this and spending is happening. Consumers want it. Um, the economics makes sense. So I think that's going to be a, a, a lasting trend. Along with Tim's lines on, on AI, I think automation and robotics is going to be a lasting trend as well. I mean, I just think, you know, the continuing need for efficiency and, and responding to demographic problems that we're having in this country in terms of enough workers, I think that's going to be a lasting theme. When I talk to my industrial companies, every single one of them, no matter what end market they compete in, talks about automation and robotics. And along a similar line, it's just, just software. You know, It's been really popular to hate software the last year or so. Uh, we still we remain software bulls. I think none of this happens <laughs> um, without really good software. So I think that's going to be a particularly compelling um, trend. It had these are great businesses, and I think that the need has never been as great. Um, and I think, lastly, defense. I mean, it's certainly an area where um, geopolitically there's more focus being put on it now. I think it's you know it's going to be a different kind of defense spending, probably more technical, um, more technology involved, and 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 more um, sort of cybersecurity related. But um, nonetheless, I do think that. Um, that's going to be a compelling theme and, and, a, and one that's uh, potentially good for small cap uh, companies. Well, perfect. I think this is a great place to wrap up. And this has been a fantastic discussion. And so Matt and Tim, I really appreciate your, your time, your insights on this really engaging discussion. Um, thank you very much to our listeners for consistently tuning in. And until next time, take care. Thanks for listening to Markets in Focus from Raymond James Investment Management. You can find additional episodes and market insights at marketsinfocuspodcast.com. You can also subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, I'm Matt Orton. Podcasts are for informational purposes only. 
This channel is not monitored by Raymond James Investment Management. Please visit marketsandfocuspodcast.com for additional disclosure. This material is a general communication being provided for information purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be taken as advice or a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan feature, or other purpose in any jurisdiction. Nor is it a commitment from Raymond James Investment Management or any of its affiliates to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any examples used are generic, hypothetical, and for illustration purposes only. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and you should not rely on it in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and make their own determinations together with their own professionals in those fields. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given, and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not reliable indicators of current and future results. Past performance does not guarantee or indicate future results. There is no guarantee that these investment strategies will work under all market conditions, and each investor should evaluate their ability to invest for the long term, especially during periods of downturn in the market. Investing involves risk and may incur a profit or loss. Investment returns and principal value will fluctuate so that an investor's portfolio when redeemed may be worth more or less than their original cost. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against loss.